Welcome to Fringe with Benefits. I'm your host, Stacy. Uh, how's it going, everybody? It's been great over here. Just crazy, crazy, crazy. We're like into the beginning of this whole new cozy, wozy lockdown holiday season of 2020. I come to you to scramble your brain on all things anomalous, peculiar, weird, and abnormal. Now let's get into it this week. Okay, let's knock out our business real quick. Follow me on all the social medias, Fringe with Benefits Facebook page, Inward Survival's Facebook page. And I have a Facebook fan page at Stacy Leo Sorio. My YouTube is at Golden Valcurification. My Twitter is at Stacy Fringe. If you go follow it, I will follow you back from my personal page. My Instagram is at Golden underscore Valkyrie underscore. Inward Survival's website is InwardSurvival.com. There is a ways to donate there and a blog for you to check out. Make sure you share the show. Visit the show's homepage on Anchor for other ways to support the show. And we have our first subscribers. So I thank them very much. You guys are awesome. And if you listen on Apple Podcasts, which it looks like most of you do, go over there and give me a rating and review. I want to know I want to know my audience. I want you guys to communicate with me and I want to hear what's going on with you and what your likes and your dislikes. Hope everybody's week went pretty good. It's been pretty intense. A lot of a lot of stuff going on in the world. I titled this episode This is a safe space because I want everyone to know that you can come here and you will not be judged. And I don't care what you think because because you have a right to think it. And everybody's perception is equally just as important as the person next to them. So I want to make sure that everybody feels good, you know? Don't be afraid to send me mail. Send me mail. I want to hear all about your crazy, wacky adventures and your perception of what is going on. I'm getting a lot of mail like in my inbox from friends that just stayed pretty quiet on social media, but they're sending me these messages like, girl, I support everything that you're saying. Thank you for speaking out. I can't speak out on this subject because my my boss is on my Facebook or, you know, my family doesn't agree or, you know, my employment is threatened. So I'm being commended for speaking out on things that they wish that they could speak out on, but they can't because of work, family, or, you know, et cetera. And I want to let every single one of them know that I appreciate that. It is really risky, like we talked about last week. It's risky to put yourself out there. It's risky to call people out when you see them doing something wrong. Besides besides just staying quiet, it's a lot easier to stay quiet. And at the beginning of this entire hullabaloo, at the beginning of this year, like I was on this fast track to be doing something totally different and of course, I wanted to start a podcast, but I had no idea it was going to be anything like this. I had to really like manifest some serious cojones to do this because it can compromise my future employment. That's why I intend on being self-employed so nobody can tell me what to do. My professional career is important, but it's not as important as bringing the truth to the world. It's not as important as lifting up those voices in which society is trying to to stifle them is not as important as stopping the book burners from burning the books. And that's why I think that this is really, really important. And I appreciate those messages. I appreciate people coming forward. And even if it's just an inbox, like, hey, girl, I appreciate seeing your posts. 
And even though they can't necessarily like them because they don't want other people to see that they liked my post, they appreciate it and that they're listening and that they support me and that they agree. So thank you to all of those people. I would also like to say that I am really sick of hearing myself talk. So when I come through, when I go through and edit these, it's really, really difficult. And if you're still here and you're listening to my podcast, thank you so much because I, for one, cannot stand to listen to myself. And I do notice that there is a lot of highway noise. I do record in my house and I live on a pretty busy highway. And I'm sorry about that. I do not have a fancy studio, not yet anyways. So you are going to hear things like my dog barking, my phone beeping, even, you know, a log truck going by. So that's the thing. I would also like to say last episode I did, I called somebody a dork, in my, the person that was in my guest spot last week. I meant that wholeheartedly because I am a dork and it takes one to know one. And then I also made a joke about um, the only one good thing came out of Canada. Lots of good things have come out of Canada. I just want to emphasize that. There's no offense made in any of the jokes that I made last week towards anybody or any particular nationality. I love you all. I just wanted to make sure that if I do make a joke, it's done out of love and it's not serious. And just wanted to put that out there in case anybody took offense to that. I just want to make sure that nobody did because there was none intended. It was just a funny haha moment. And that's all we have for our accountability section. This week on Stacy's Socials, I have a real treat for you. I ran into this article from Science Alert, and it is titled, Neanderthals and humans were at war for over 100,000 years, evidence shows. And it talks about how humanity split in two, um, maybe even three. But from what we know is we split and we were a sister species of uh, Homo neanderthalensis, right? So we stayed in Africa. And we involved there. And then others moved along overland into Asia in Europe and became the Neanderthals. Now, they're fascinating because of what they tell us about humanity, because they are a part of humanity, are they not? They have evolved next to us. Now, we don't see any evidence blatantly of them existing now, but if you look into the Bigfoot mythology, Maybe they did retreat into the hills and they have co-evolved with us, except instead of growing technologically, they grew in other ways. So humans have always been a warring species, and that tells us a lot about how we interacted with the Neanderthals. Now, we do know that um, humans loved to war and Neanderthals did too, and that they were likely skilled fighters and warriors rivaled only by us, the modern human. So we were cooperative hunters, cooperative big game hunters, and sitting on top of the food chain, having few predators of our own, the cooperation of populations would be driven by um, control over hunting grounds. Cooperative aggression has evolved in our common ancestor of the chimps and ourselves. It's The article says that seven million, seven million years ago, Neanderthals would have inherited these same tendencies towards cooperative aggression. Now, warfare is um, inherently human, and war is not a modern invention. In fact, it's an ancient fundamental part of our humanity. The oldest writings that we know of are filled with war stories. 
and ancient fortresses and battles and sites of prehistoric massacres going going back thousands of years. We are so similar to the Neanderthalus that it's we are we share 99.7% of our DNA. And behaviorally we are very similar too because from what we can tell from archaeological records, Neanderthals made fire, buried their dead, made jewelry from seashells and animal teeth and made artwork as well as stone shrines. We see a lot of evidence around our earth of stone shrines or sites in which stones were intentionally placed. Very big, heavy stones that maybe our ancestors were not able to move. Now, back in the day, we lived violent lives. And this could be why, like, I'm super hip to, I love medieval warfare, I love primitive warfare, considering, you know, we and them had to use spears to take down deer, bison, rhinos, maybe mammoths. And we had weapons that we would fight and war amongst each other with. And that is where we get the evidence. This is what's really cool. So there's prehistoric warfare leaves these telltale signs. A club to the head is one. And a club was actually a very, very popular weapon. And we see a lot of evidence of trauma to the skull in not only humans, but in Neanderthals. So we were all beating each other on the top of the head. Another sign of warfare is the peri fracture, and that is a break in the lower arm bones caused by blocking and warding off blows. Neanderthals show a lot of these broken arms. For example, one from Shanidar, Shanidar Cave in Iraq was impaled by a spear to the chest. This type of trauma is very common in the young Neanderthal males. And some injuries could have been sustained due to hunting, but there are patterns that predicted that this was from engaging in intertribal warfare. And now, in addition to the physical evidence of injuries, there are also evidence of territorial boundaries. And if you go and look at this article, it shows a basic map of Africa and Europe and India and the Middle East, and it shows where the humans migrated and where um, the Neanderthals lived and the, the Denisovians and where these boundaries may have lied as we tried to migrate north and then we were met with resistance because their population inhabited that area. They're saying that we maybe were fighting with them for over 100,000 years and that the Neanderthals were, were resisting our migration to the north. They do say that maybe that's why we didn't leave Africa sooner and because there we were met with resistance trying to cross into the northern territories. Now, population growth inevitably forces populations to acquire more land and find more sufficient territory to hunt and to forage. But it's been shown that aggressive military strategy has has contributed to this evolution. So this article says that for thousands of years, Humans may have been testing uh, the Neanderthals fighting, and and for maybe thousands of years we kept losing until weapons, tactics, strategies, technologies were evenly matched. So they must have had some kind of tactical and strategic advantages because they had occupied the Middle East for thousands of years. Their massive and muscular builds must have made them devastating fighters. I mean, could you imagine fighting an eight-foot-tall beast of a human? <laughs> they had really big eyes, which gave them superior low-light vision. 
If you think about Bigfoot, they probably have evolved to be able to see in the dark. And they can, they've got a, a huge advantage by being able to see in the dark. At some time during this 100,000 year war, there was an advantage. We, we got the upper hand. And it could have been because of ranged weapons or projectile weapons. Or maybe there was better hunting and gathering techniques on the human side, creating an advantage um, nutritionally as well as a reproduction. So supposedly about 200,000 years ago, the Homo sapiens broke out of Africa, and but it took like 150,000 years to conquer the Neanderthal lands. For example, Israel and Greece, the archaic Homo sapiens, took ground only to fall back against their counteroffensive. And that there was possibly a final offensive made by modern Homo sapiens starting about 125,000 years ago, eliminating them. Now, are they eliminated? Well, we don't see them uh, walking around amongst us in our societies. But, like I said before, there are reports of a people living in remote wilderness lands. So ultimately, I guess we won, obviously, because here we are and we, we basically like run the whole gamut. But it wasn't because they were less inclined to fight. We just became better at war than they did. And they recessed and evolved in a certain way. And we just continued to conquer and do what we've been doing for thousands of years. I think that it is very fascinating that there were other species of humanoid beings and that we lived amongst them for hundreds of thousands of years. Yet nobody talks about this. I never went to the Natural History Museum and saw evidence of Neanderthal bones. I did learn about them in my anthropology classes and at call in college, but how many people like recently do you do they talk about this? Do do people talk about these other humanoids that walked on the earth with us and that we battled with and that we've actually intermingled our DNA with? It's a fascinating subject. I will share it on the show's Facebook page so you guys can check it out. And um, let me know what you think. Do you think that the Neanderthals evolved into the Sasquatch people? Or do you think that they just didn't survive our onslaught of war and dominion? I don't know. I think that they still exist out there. Let me know what you think. Yay! Okay, guys, welcome to Viral Content corner. This week we're going to talk about, it's not so much a viral video, but the concept has kind of gone viral. And the the theme that surrounds this film I'm going to talk about is very apparent in um, other mentionings of 1984, A Brave New World by Aldous Huxley. The first one, 1984, is George Orwell. This kind of goes right along with that because it is right in with those science fiction writers that basically told us the future and what was going to happen. And I'm not saying that this movie is what's happening or is what's going to happen in the future, but there are some similarities and some weird serendipities that I'd like to talk about. So the movie is John Carpenter's They Live. My spouse and I decided to sit down and watch this last week. He'd never seen it all the way through, but he knew the the basic contact, context of what it was about. And I hadn't seen it since I had to have been like eight or nine years old. 
So I knew that I wanted to see it because it kind of brought back good memories of sitting in my living room watching a totally inappropriate movie for a child, just like my entire childhood. <laughs> okay, so the screenplay and the film was directed by John Carpenter, or the screenplay was righted and the film was directed by John Carpenter. And it's based on a short story, which I just found this out, from 1963 called 8 O'Clock in the Morning. We will talk about that more. His, um, the man who wrote that story is Ray Nelson. So Ray Nelson's science fiction writer, John Carpenter, is pretty well known for science fiction horror. So the story of this guy, it follows this unnamed drifter. And he discovers, like, so he runs into these people at this homeless encampment because he needed somewhere to stay met up with this guy that he ended up scoring a job with at a construction site and so he goes back to this homeless encampment and there's this church across the street in which you know there's some weird activity going on and he notices some strange things that are you know similarities between these people that are affiliated with this church next to the homeless encampment might have some connections with these people that are um, hacking into the television and trying to get this message out about about you know that they're all asleep and that they all need to wake up so he sneaks over there and he finds a bunch of boxes of these sunglasses and so he takes a pair of these sunglasses um you're gonna have to watch the movie I'm not gonna tell you step by step what happens basically puts these sunglasses on and he's able to see these aliens that have taken over they're really scary looking and really gross. They kind of look like uh, biomechanical, weird, and scary. They have no eyelids. They have no lips. But I know, I know you know what this film is. It's starring Roddy Piper, Keith David, and Meg Foster. They're all amazing. Okay, so the basic plot of this is that the hacker that takes, um, that hacks into the television, he's he's trying to warn people that. He, Scientists have discovered these signals that are enslaving the population and keeping them in a dreamlike state. And the only way is to be able to shut it off at its source. Roddy Piper, he freaking puts these sunglasses on. He's like, holy shit, what is going on? And so he tries to get his friend who, you know, made all these connections for him. His name is, uh, he's awesome too. Jeez, Louise. Keith David. I think he's passed away now. But anyways, they get into this really long fight because he wants him to put on the sunglasses and he won't put on the sunglasses. They literally beat the ever-living shit out of each other. And they did it such a great job. <laughs> it's really funny and pretty ridiculous. But anyways, they end up teaming up with these people that have seen the truth. And the news is calling them terrorists, basically. And that they're they're killing innocent people. And in actuality, they're not. They're killing these aliens. And they're trying to get to the source of the signal so they can shut it off so everybody can, like, see what they are seeing and I'm not going to tell you then because it's pretty pretty awesome and pretty funny but I noticed there were these similarities between this like stupid 1980s science fiction flick and today because we've talked about Project Mockingbird before and if you you know if you think back to mind control techniques that the CIA has used on the population using media it's really kind of coincidental that it it falls right in line with this movie. So we've got the TV that's transmitted these subliminal messaging. And then you've got this element of the low-income population is being controlled and being kept in the dark and keeping them asleep in front of their devices. Back then it was just the TV. But it was very apparent in the film 
that people were under sort of a trance and that when they were watching the TV, they would get these headaches and um, started to not feel well. So the bad guys were giving humans, you know, more wealth and control. So at the end of the movie, they walk into this like huge ballroom in which all these elite wealthy people are celebrating and patting themselves on the back for being in cahoots with these aliens to keep their fellow brothers and sisters enslaved. But they're getting to live the good life, you know. They, they, they're being paid well for their deceit. This goes back to the concept of those that are willing to sell out their friends are going to be rewarded handsomely. And we've seen this in politics all around the world, right? So any of these people that were willing to help these aliens were going to, you know, have a lot of money, a lot of wealth. They'd be well taken care of. They'd be living the good life. Based on this short story, like I mentioned earlier, 8 o'clock in the morning by Ray Nelson. And I'm going to actually read that for you, I think. There's also in these films flying drones that they kind of spy on you. And unless you have the sunglasses on, you cannot see them. And they will, you know, they've got a camera and they're going to, you know, message your location to the bad guys so they can come get you. That's pretty interesting because we do have that technology now. Not so sure if they're able to cloak them, but most likely they do have some cloaking technology. We've talked about that before. So John Carpenter himself said, because he wrote the screenplay in 1978 and directed it um, 1980s, He's, he's been recorded as saying, quote, it's a documentary, not science fiction, end quote. In this film, there are these conspiracy theorists that are like ranting and trying to tell people what's going on, but everybody looks at them like they're crazy. That's pretty interesting. These people, like I said, are called terrorists. The news media is saying, you know, these terrorists are on the loose. They're killing people. They're nuts. You know, they're, they're out of their minds. And they're a danger to you and a danger to society. So keep an eye out. And if you see these people, let us know. That's pretty interesting. There, you know, like going back to the homeless population and the poor folk, there seems to be some sort of like oppression of the human race from this, you know, I'm going to use the term shadowy cabal. This film is kind of controversial because, you know, people use it in a form of an argument kind of to be like, hey, look, you know, things could not, might not be as they seem. There, It has kind of a bad reputation because many, many groups have been appropriating this film to, to spread hate speech and not so many other words. And this film is easily exploitable to fit anybody's narrative. So we have to all be cautious of that. John Carpenter actually responded to, I think it was a white supremacist group that was using this film to try to like recruit people or whatever and he tweeted out that the movie was more about yuppies and unrestrained capitalism than anything like they were trying to put it off like and I don't blame him he needed to make sure that people were not abusing his work to push their narrative or drive their agenda I you know I think that that was very responsible for him to step up and be like, no, this is what it was about. The common, the common theme here in this movie is that we're, we're a resource, we're a commodity. 
it doesn't really get into it in the film, like how they use people, but they're using people because they have us all hypnotized. So this this concept, we talked about it before with the Social Dilemma documentary, that our attention has become a commodity. Our attention has become a resource and a way for them to make money. And so like, look at those parallels that this crazy ass movie treats humans as a commodity as well. Or this crazy ass movie just like lines it up to where the aliens are using the humans for some reason or another. Real quick to reiterate that this whole media control and MK Ultra techniques is very apparent in the film and we can draw some connections there. Now, interesting article, I've linked all the articles that I used for research in this in the show notes. Roddy Piper, the super <laughs> the super stud with the the mullet and the the really really tight high-waisted pants. He I guess he was interviewed on Infowars by Alex Jones. He said I guess he was a big fan of Alex Jones and Piper said that that it's this film is kind of a cliff notes on what really is going on end quote the waking up concept we've seen this more than once um the protagonist is trying to wake up his fellow humans there's something going on that only he knows about it and he needs to get people to wake up or it just spells doom it's just doom really when you're watching this and you're like okay these people are are radicals but are they are they trying to tell us the truth, but are they nuts, you know? And we see a lot of this. Our media tells us who these, you know, extremist groups are and who to be worried about. And are they are they being honest or is it just, you know, a group that seems to be foiling their plans? I don't know. But there is that parallel as well. All these strange parallels really make you think, don't it? So at the end of this movie, we're just like looked at, looking at each other like in awe like wow look at all the similarities between this film in 1988 and our life now even with all the new technologies and everything so i made a list of all these things that you know just were undeniably coincidental and we watched the film all the way through the credits at the very end the very end the filmmaker gave credit to the Control Data Corporation. This is a company that was founded in 1957. I'm like, okay, well, why would they thank the Control Data Corporation? I'm going to look into this. And down this rabbit hole, I went. So the Control Data Corporation was founded by Seymour Roger Cray. This guy was an incredible electrical engineer. He was the first person to build the supercomputer. I think, in fact, that first supercomputer was... One of the very first sent to CERN back in the day. So he was one of the big pioneers on this really, really advanced technology. So I'm not really sure, like, there's not a whole lot about this guy. He was killed in a car accident in 1996, but they called him the father of supercomputing. And he had a huge effect on this industry. Like, he was the pioneer, one of the pioneers that brought us into the technological age. So we really have to thank him. But why did the film thank him? Well, at the beginning of the movie, they used um, they used the control. What's the name of that company again? They used the Control Data Corporation billboard 
to be one of the things in the movie. So when you looked, if you looked with the sunglasses, it would say obey or reproduce and marry instead of the advertisement, which was for the controlled data corporation. So that, I think that that's why they thanked him in the movie. But it's pretty interesting that, you know, they, they said thanks to this guy. And so I looked into him a little bit more. And there's nothing too odd, but there is. There is this story about a, a colleague of Seymour Craze, and his name was John Rollwagon. And he tells the story of this French scientist who visited Seymour Craze's house in Chippewa Falls. And Cray took him down into the basement or underneath his house in which he's been tunneling under there. Now, I don't know how true this is. And you can find all kinds of little resources of like, oh, this is just a story told to make him seem extra eccentric. But the word is, is that Cray took this guy down there. The guy asked him what a secret of his success was. And Cray said, well, we have elves here and they help me. And that so... Late at night, he would go down under his house and start digging, and these elves would appear, and they would give him insight into what he needed to be working on next. It doesn't make me, like, super suspicious that he's actually talking to elves or anything, but there's so much in this small little statement that we just really got to keep in the back of our minds. He would say, he said that he reached an impasse or sometimes he would reach, um, you know, a blockage in his creativity and he would retire to his underground tunnel to dig, you know, and that he said while he was digging in the tunnel, the elves would often come to me with solutions to my problem. Therefore, he was able to complete his project. Now, if this is something that he was relying on throughout time, was it a, a form of psychosis? Was he really being visited by multidimensional beings in this tunnel underneath his house? This guy had a lot of influence into where we are today. I just figured that you guys should know that they dedicated this film or they, they made dedication to this film to this company who was owned or founded by this fella who was digging tunnels underneath his house and talking to elves. So I just wanted to let you guys know that. I think that it's pretty important to to look a little further than the end of our nose. And that's why I really wanted to talk about that on Viral Corner, because you see all these gifs of the guy with the, the sunglasses or the weird, scary skull-looking face. You see those gifs. That came from this movie. And if you have a chance to watch it, I highly suggest it. And then maybe you can list down all the reasons why this movie is very, very similar to what's going on today. That's all. Before we get into our weekly topic, I'm going to go ahead and do our mailbag first because I said that I would read to you 8 o'clock in the morning by Ray Nelson so you can have a great comparison to what our viral video was based off of, and it actually ties into our weekly topic. So make sure you send me your mail, fringewithbenefits at protonmail.com, fringewithbenefits at protonmail.com. I want your scary stories, your supernatural stories. Did you see an alien? Do you think somebody's a reptilian? Tell me about it. Send it to me. Let me know if you want me to use your name or to leave it out. Either way, send me some mail for the show. And now, without further ado, let's get into Ray Nelson's Eight o'clock in the morning from 1963. At the end of the show, the hypnotist told his subjects, Awake! Something unusual happened. One of the subjects awoke all the way, and this had never happened before. 
His name was George Nada, and he blinked out at the sea of faces in the theater, at first unaware of anything out of the ordinary. He noticed, spotted here and there in the crowd, the non-human faces, the faces of the fascinators. They had been there all along, of course, but only George was really awake, so only George recognized them for what they were. He understood everything in a flash, including the fact that if he were to give any outward sign, the fascinators would instantly command him to return to his former state and he would obey. He left the theater, pushing out into the neon light, carefully avoiding any indication that he saw the green reptilian flesh or the multiple yellowed eye of eyes of the rulers of the earth. One of them asked him, you got a light, buddy? George gave him a light and then moved on. At intervals along the street, George saw the posters hanging with photographs of the fascinator's multiple eyes and various commands printed under them, such as work eight hours, play eight hours, sleep eight hours, and marry and reproduce. A TV set in the window of a store caught George's eye, but he looked away in the nick of time. When he didn't look at the fascinator in the screen, he could resist the command, stay tuned to this station. George lived alone in a little sleeping room, and as soon as he got home, the first thing he did was disconnect the TV set. In other rooms, he could hear the TV sets of his neighbors, though. Most of the time, the voices were human, but now and then he heard the arrogant, strangely bird-like croaks of the aliens. Obey the government, said one croak. We are the government, said another. We are your friends. You'd do anything for a friend, wouldn't you? Obey. Work. Suddenly the phone rang. George picked it up. It was one of the fascinators. Hello, it squawked. This is your control, Chief of Police Robinson. You are an old man, George Nada. Tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock, your heart will stop. Please repeat. I am an old man, said George. Tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock, my heart will stop. The control hung up. No, it won't, whispered George. He wondered why they would want him dead. Did they suspect that he was awake? Probably. Someone may have spotted him, noticed that he didn't respond the way the others did. If George were alive at one minute, after eight tomorrow morning, then they would be sure. No use waiting here for the end, he thought. He went out again. The posters, the TV, the occasional commands from passing aliens didn't seem to have absolute power over him, although he still felt strongly tempted to obey, to see things the way his master wanted him to see them. He passed an alley and stopped. One of the aliens was alone there, leaning against the wall. George walked up to him. Move on, grunted the thing, focusing his deadly eyes on George. George felt his grasp on awareness waver. For a moment, the reptilian head dissolved into a face of a lovable old drunk. Of course the drunk would be lovable. George picked up a brick and smashed it down on the old drunk's head with all his strength. For a moment, the image blurred. Then the blue-green blood oozed out of the face and the lizard fell, twitching and writhing. After a moment, it was dead. George dragged the body into the shadows and searched it. There was a tiny radio in its pocket and a curiously shaped knife and a fork in another. The tiny radio said something in an incomprehensible language. George put it down beside the body but kept, eat, kept the eating utensils. I can't possibly escape, thought George. Why fight them? Or maybe he could. What if he could awaken the others? That might be worth a try. He walked 12 blocks to the apartment of his girlfriend, Lil, and knocked on her door. She came to the door in her bathrobe. I want you to wake up, he said. I'm awake, she said. Come on in. He went in. The TV was playing. He turned it off. No, he said. I mean, really wake up. She looked at him without comprehension, so he snapped his fingers and shouted, Wake up, the master's command, that you wake up. Are you off your rocker, George? She asked suspiciously. Are you sure are acting funny? He slapped her face. Cut that out, she cried. What the hell are you up to anyway? Nothing, said George, defeated. I was just kidding around. Slapping my face wasn't just kidding around, she cried. There was a knock at the door. George opened it. It was one of the aliens. 
Can't you keep the noise down to a dull roar, it said. The eyes and reptilian flesh faded a little, and George saw the flickering image of a fat middle-aged man in shirt sleeves. It was still a man when George slashed its throat with the eating knife, but it was an alien before it hit the floor. He dragged it into the apartment and kicked the door shut. What do you see there, he asked Lil, pointing to the mini-eyed snake thing on the floor. Mr. Mr. Coney, she whispered, her eyes wide with horror. You just killed him like he was nothing at all. Don't scream, warned George, advancing on her. I won't, George. I swear I won't. Only please, for the love of God, put down that knife. She backed away until she had her shoulder blades pressed against the wall. George saw that it was no use. I'm going to tie you up, said George. First tell me which room Mr. Coney lived in. The first door on your left as you go towards the stairs, she said. Georgie, Georgie, don't torture me. If you're going to kill me, do it clean. Please, Georgie, please. He tied her up with bed sheets and gagged her and then searched the body of the fascinator. There was another one of the little radios that talked a foreign language. Another set of eating utensils and nothing else. George went next door. When he knocked, one of the snake things answered, Who is it? Friend of Mr. Coney. I want to see him, said George. He went out for a second, but he'll be right back. The door opened a crack and four yellow eyes peeped out. You want to come in and wait? Okay, said George, not looking at the eyes. You alone here, he asked as it closed the door. It's back to George. Yeah, why? He slit its throat from behind, then searched the apartment. He found human bones and skulls, half-eaten hand. He found tanks with huge fat slugs floating in them. The children, he thought, and killed them all. There were guns, too, of a sort they had never seen before. He discharged one by accident, but fortunately it was noiseless. He seemed to fire little poison darts. It seemed to fire little poison darts. He pocketed the gun and as many boxes of darts that he could and went back to Lil's place. When she saw him, she writhed in helpless terror. Relax, honey, he said, opening her purse. I just want to borrow your car keys. He took the keys and went downstairs to the street. Her car was still parked in the same general area in which he always parked it. He recognized it by the dent in the right fender. He got in, started it, and began driving aimlessly. He drove for hours, thinking desperately, searching for some way out. He turned the car radio to see on to see if he could get some music, but there was nothing but news, and it was all about him. George Nada, the hom homicidal maniac. The announcer was one of the masters, but it sounded a little scared. Why should he be? What could one man do? George wasn't surprised when he saw the roadblock, and he turned off on a side street before he reached it. No little trip to the country for you, Georgie boy, he thought to himself. They had just discovered what he had done back at Lil's place. They would probably be looking for Lil's car. He parked it in an alley and took the subway. There were no aliens on the subway for some reason. Maybe they were too good for such things, or maybe it was just because it was so late at night. When one finally did get on, George got off. He went up to the street and went into a bar. One of the fascinators was on the TV saying over and over again, We are your friends. We are your friends. We are your friends. The stupid lizard sounded scared. Why? What could one man do against all of them? George ordered a beer and then it suddenly struck him that the fascinator on the TV no longer seemed to have any power over him. He looked at it again and thought, It has to believe it can master me to do it. The slightest hint of fear on its part and the power to hypnotize <laughs> The slightest hint of fear on its part, and the power to hypnotize is lost. They flashed George's picture on the TV screen, and George retreated to the phone booth. He called his control, the chief of police. Hello, Robinson, he asked. Speaking, this is George Nada. I figured out how to wake up people. What, George? Hang on, where are you? Robinson sounded almost hysterical. He hung up and paid and left the bar. They would probably trace his call. He caught another subway and went downtown. 
It was dawn when he entered the building housing of the biggest of the city's TV studios. He consulted the building director and then went up in the elevator. The cop in front of the studio recognized him. Why? You're not a, he gasped. George didn't like to shoot him with the poison dart gun, but he had to. He had to kill several more before he got into the studio itself, including all the engineers on duty. There were a lot of police sirens outside, excited shouts and running footsteps on the stairs. The alien was sitting before the TV camera saying, We are your friends. We are your friends. And didn't see George come in. When George shot him with the needle gun, he simply stopped in mid-sentence and sat there dead. George stood near to him and said, imitating the alien croak, Wake up! Wake up! See us as we are and kill us! It was George's voice the city heard that morning, but it was the fascinator's image. And the city did wake for, awake for the very first time, and the war began. George did not live to see the victory that finally came. He died of a heart attack at exactly 8 o'clock. Wow. The end. Here for the weekly topic, I presume. This week we're going to talk about something nobody wants to talk about. It's like the... The thing that people will say under their breath when they, like, use to, you know, describe somebody that they know. And the reason why I'm talking about it, because it's been, like, this theme throughout, throughout my life. And, you know, since we're already on the They Live subject and, and the story that it's been based off of, I wanted to explore the topic of reptilians. I've heard about these things since I was a little kid. In fact, my dad had this... Um, indigenous uh, masseuse woman I'm not going to say her name but she was a dear friend of my dad's and she was his massage therapist and she and her boyfriend lived or they were on their way to live on a in a community of people like-minded people like themselves in Colorado not sure where they went or like how culty it is but she told my parents that they believed that there were reptilian alien humanoids that were able to make themselves look human, that they were underneath the skin of humans. Not really sure, but that was what, you know, my parents told me that she was this really nice lady, but they believed that there were these reptile humanoids that have taken over our earth and they're like hiding behind some cloaked human version of, you know, whoever we think they are. So this has been, you know, when you add up this movie and now this eight o'clock in the morning story on top of my prior experiences as a kid being around adults that talked about these kind of people, you become, you become really intrigued and it's like, okay, so they're not, all these people all can't be crazy. They're all experiencing the same thing and people are genuinely curious. There are um, some authors and some speakers, I have, I've talked about them on the show before, that talk about this phenomenon and that there, there's a whole lot more to our reality than we are acknowledging or talking about. It's kind of a funny ha-ha moment when people are like, oh, you know, they believe in reptilians, <laughs> you know, and it's like, ha-ha, let's make fun of them because they... Keep in mind that we only know so much and, but yeah, it's an awkward subject. So here we go. We're going to talk about this. According to Wikipedia, the reptilian humanoid is also called the lizard man. They appear in folklore, fiction, and conspiracy theories. 
Many cultures have legends of creatures which are a part human and part reptile. One of the first historical representations of a reptilian humanoid was an ancient Egyptian deity, Sobek, who this guy had the head of a crocodile. He was depicted with um, aggressive and animalistic traits. And then in South Asian and Southeast Asian mythology, the Naga are semi-divine creatures, which are half human and half serpent. In folklore, they're common in the Southern United States because of the crocodiles in the South. So supposedly in the late 1980s, there was hundreds of sightings of lizard men in South Carolina. <laughs> and then in fiction, you know, we've got our dragons from our, our fantasy land and our science fiction. Lots of different various looking reptiles and snakes and serpents. They're so strange that what makes them so mystifying. Now let's get down to the reptilian conspiracy theory. They're also called reptoids, lizard people, reptiloids, saurins, and draconians. And I've also heard them being called archons. I could be wrong though, but I think that they are archons as well. This idea has been popularized by David Icke, who's a conspiracy theorist. We've talked about him before. And he, this is what uh, Wiki quotes, They claim he claims shape-shifting reptilian aliens control Earth by taking on human form and gaining political power to manipulate human societies. He has stated on multiple occasions that many world leaders are or are possessed by these so-called reptilians. But the origins of this, however, My Michael Barkin, professor of political science at Syracuse University, says the idea of a reptilian conspiracy originated in the fiction of Conan the Barbarian written by Robert Howard. This was the first appearance of these serpent men, and the story drew theosophical ideas of lost worlds of Atlantis and Lemuria, and in particular, Blavatsky, Helena Blavatsky's A Secret Doctrine that was written in 1888, references dragon men who once had a mighty civilization on the Lemurian continent. So we're getting like way, way advanced storytelling or alternative ancient origins because what we know is so very limited so these things have been around a long time a lot of people have talked about them there is a historian that argued the conspiracy theory drew from earlier pseudo-historical legends developed during the colonization of africa so there we go there's another culture that has famed reptilian humanoids as being a part of their a part of their history now they have they've been related to alien abductions. There are some narratives that allege um, encounters with these reptilian people, and one of the reports is one from Ashland, Nebraska, a police officer Herbert Shermer, born 1945, who under hypnosis recalled being taken aboard a UFO in 1967 by humanoid beings with slightly reptilian appearance, who wore a winged serpent emblem on the left side of their chest. Skeptics consider his claims to be a hoax. Hoax. I'd like to I'd like to hear what those skeptics have to say in response to like why why do they call it a hoax? There's just in it ends like that. Let's move into the Herald. It's theheraldscotland.com and they did this awesome article called I'm David Ike and I certainly sweated when shape-shifting reptilian alien Prince Andrew almost gave the biggest secret away. This is written November 23rd, 2019. If you get out there looking for this kind of stuff, you're going to find a plethora of people that want to talk about 
what David Icke has to say. He is one of the band people that you're going to run into. He doesn't have his YouTube anymore. I think that they've taken him off Twitter. They're just trying to silence him in any way, shape, or form that they can. And I mean, besides the fact that, besides the fact that people might believe him, as long as people aren't being violent or doing anything threatening to other people, they they should have a right to explore whatever topics they want to explore, correct? Now, I think a lot of people probably, I don't know, I run through my head this scenario of, okay, so what if I saw, um, I saw all these reptilian people and like in the movie They Live, I started shooting people, but other people see them as normal people and then it just appears like I'm killing innocent people what how that would be horrible to be in that situation in which you actually have gone insane and there actually are no aliens so that would be like the worst case scenario don't wouldn't you think other than that you know if they want to talk about the possibility of there being aliens there there's been plenty of ancient cultures that have stated that they believed these things to exist not to mention the thousands of other people that have claimed to either see them or have heard from them or Now, this article written by Bill Bain is, it says, in fact, if you can tear yourself away from that tracking and profiling tool you call a phone for a second and unplug your brain from the monstrous psyops mass enslavement tool known as the internet, you could pick up my 53rd book, The Trigger, to discover reality as we know it is simply an illusion. And you'll find out, blankety blank, 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 you're going to have to read the article because I'm not going to say it. He talks about Silicon Valley's satanic digital prison, and which has his, his words made cellmates of us all with this predictive algorithmic evil. Now, so he's promoting his book. If you've listened to him, you would hear that he has described these phenomenons. He's described string theory, quantum physics, all in his words when speaking to his audience. He goes on to say, like how there's a harmonic code locked into all atomic matter, and if you listen closely enough to dates, times, names, and events, you'll hear the universe sing. Or if you're not attuned to the cosmos like I am, simply buy his book, The Trigger, where you'll discover not only the shocking truth behind human existence, where genetically engineered slave race created and cultivated by trans-dimensional aliens, but also the fact that there are no such things as coincidences. So, as we continue on with our weekly topic, I had to fix a couple things with my my microphone. I don't know what I did, but I messed it up. It's kind of funny, as I'm recording this, we've got a generator going in the back, and I've got my hubbies out there working, and I kept hearing this sound, and I'm like, oh god, oh well, and that's what it is. So I greatly apologize for the inconsistencies with the audio, but let's continue on. So the next article is called um, We're All Conspiracy Theorists Now, Even Our Lizard Overlords. And this is written, let me see, doesn't have her name right here, but it's written November 9th, 2014. It's written by a lady named um, Beth Daly. And this pretty much goes into the basics of conspiracy theorists and that there is this organization called the Reptilian Resistance Movement United and they are primarily conservative social activists and you know they're declaring war upon evil and the reptilian alien hybrids that have supposedly infiltrated the government as well as climate change deniers and the 
political affiliations that result in that as well. So it's pretty interesting perspective if you want to get into the conspiracy theory debunking and other like non-conspiracy related grounds in which they're speaking about science. I would say that this is a pretty biased article, but I mean, it's totally it's totally something we need to be thinking about and whether or not conspiracy theories is driving people politically. It's something we need to look at. The only thing in this article that is relating to the reptilians were the the tongue-in-cheek jokes, um, especially at the end, basically closes that her, her words, quote, whether or not that is a cause for concern depends on our view of what political discussion should involve. At the very least, it should worry our lizard overlords. So she thought it was really, really funny. <laughs> and I pretty much do too. And that's awesome. Let's go to wearethemighty.com and talk about this airman who claims she was kidnapped and taken to the moon by reptile aliens. Blake Stilwell wrote this in January 25th, 2019. He says that an interview with an Aquarian radio former Air Force radar trafficking operator Niara Torella Isley claims she was abducted at age 25 while working at the Tonopah Test Range in Nevada. Throughout 1980, she was taken to the moon eight to ten times where she was forced to have sex with reptile aliens on the far side of the moon. There is a YouTube video that I am going to have to definitely watch that is linked to this article. It goes on to say her enslavement didn't stop at sexual activity. In these taped interviews, she said she was forced to operate machinery to excavate parts of the moon to expand the military installation. Her base is manned by the reptilian personnel, the gray aliens, and other humans. And her abductor was a humanoid with a tail, yellow eyes, and vertically split pupils who would pass her around to other reptilians and wouldn't let her sleep. She's now 60, lives in Colorado, is a mother of two, as she recovered these memories through hypnosis when she noticed she couldn't remember three months of her life during the year of 1980. That is an absolute trip. Like this, I've never heard of this. I've n- I have not heard of this situation before. So this article goes on to say that the reptilian idea didn't originate with this woman, that it actually started with David Icke. And they, um, he believes that they come from the Alpha Draconis star system and hide in these underground bases. Ike's belief is that they are creating this worldwide conspiracy against humans, and conspirators include people like Presidents Bush and Obama, Queen Elizabeth II, Mick Jagger, and Tony Blair, and Greenspan. Alan Greenspan. I don't know who that is. <laughs> You'll have to tell me. This is pretty neat. Neat little article. You have to check that out. That's one I haven't seen before. Thenewstatesman.com titled Psycho Lizards from Saturn, the Godlike Genius of David Icke. This is written November 2014 by Dorian Linsky. And he talks about the Archons, an ancient race of reptilian psychopaths who have hijacked our perception of reality in the manner of the Matrix. Now, this is what I heard. I heard that they have been, they've infiltrated the human existence and in a way they are manipulating things so they can siphon negative vibrations off of our interactions and they get a real kick out of bad behavior violence deceit all the really bad things that make us feel really bad that they they somehow absorb that negative energy and it feeds them 
I'm wondering if this article is going to get into that because that's what, always what I heard. But I've also heard things that they eat human beings and that we are basically like cattle to them. And I'm going to, you know, disclaimer right now. I don't know if this stuff is true or not. I'd like to hope not, but it doesn't mean I want to learn any less about this. And I'm going to suck up this content all the way because it's fascinating to me. David Icke, in this article, it talks about that David Icke considers himself the world's biggest maverick and unique free thinker. And, you know, he does these really, really long lectures, like hours upon hours. He's got this um, unbelievable amount of energy. He's 62 years old, at least the time of this article. So he is about 70 now, it looks like. I'm probably, my math is horrible. I don't know. The Maiden Narrative, this, this journalist goes on to talk about involving the Archons who are the ancient race of reptilian psychopaths, and they have blinded humans to the real world, which kind of resembles um, that of, like, Avatar, and they are creating this dystopian society, kind of like the Hunger Games. This inverted reality is being broadcast from Saturn via the moon, which is hollow. So they also say that um, the moon is like a satellite, that it was an artificially built thing, that it didn't actually come to be naturally. It goes on to talk more about David Icke and what he thinks, and I really would like to talk more about the reptilians. David Icke's been through a lot of stuff. He's been treated really, really poorly. He's been ridiculed, made fun of, and there's so many articles out there that either, you know, reinforce the bullying or try to give him a little bit of at least a little bit of compassion. Let's get into one from theguardian.com. It's titled Conspiracy Craze Why 12 Million Americans Believe Alien Lizards Rule Us. It goes on to say that according to a public policy polling survey, around 12 million people in the U.S. believe that interstellar lizards in people suits rule our country. See, that is exactly what she, the, the lady that knew my dad said. That this idea was imported across the pond from David Icke, but that's not necessarily true, is it? Because we've seen that there's several cultures that talked about reptilian people. An academic psychologist and author of Suspicious Minds, Why We Believe in Conspiracy Theories, says if we were all completely trusting, it would not be good for survival. His name is Rob Brotherton. He says sometimes people really don't have our best interests in mind. He calls it prudent paranoia into the territory of the illogical. And so he goes on to say that there are a lot of illogical ideas to pick from and that around 66 million Americans believe that aliens landed at Roswell, New Mexico, and 22 million believe the government faked the moon landing. So Roswell, they didn't land, they crashed. And we all know that that it happened. The moon landing, I think that that was a bit of information that the CIA put out there to see how easy conspiracy theories were to be believed if they just put it out on a platter for you. I do believe we were on the moon. I do not believe that they faked it. And that around 160 million believe that there's a conspiracy surrounding the assassination of former U.S. President JFK. Absolutely. I believe that there was a conspiracy because he was going to take him out. He was not. He actually gave a shit about us. So no wonder they didn't want him in office. The author goes on to talk about that... um, Although, you know, conspiracy theories induce eye rolls from people, he says that the government, for example, does sometimes conspire to do the unspeakable, such as the 1930s Tuskegee study. This was when the U.S. government examined untreated syphilis in African-American men. Researchers blocked research participants from receiving penicillin 
or exiting the experiment to get treatment. The study continued until a media report made it public. So they were actually keeping people sick. It actually did happen. We're going to have to talk about that one sometime. So the article goes on to say, chances are we all know someone who believes in some version of conspiracy theory, which is why psychologists have been trying to understand what makes someone jump from logically questioning the world to looking for signs of lizard teeth and public figures. Research has shown that feelings of powerlessness and uncertainty are associated with a tendency to believe in conspiracies. This is what Karen Douglas, professor of social psychology at the University of Kent in the UK says. Or Joseph Isinski, associate professor of political science at the University of Miami and the author of American Sp- Conspiracy Theories, puts it, conspiracies are for losers, end quote. He says that he doesn't mean it in the pejorative sense. Is that a word? Pejorative? Man, I feel like a dumbass. But people who are out of power use conspiracy theories to strategically alert their side to danger, to close ranks, to salve their wounds. Think any election the morning after, half the country says the election was rigged and the other half is happy. Interesting. He says that believing in a conspiracy theory is one strategy people use to regain a sense of control. Even if what the conspiracy theory is totally unrelated to that lack of control in that person's life. It's a way for someone to understand what is going on in the world and try to restore some sense of control. This doesn't make any sense to me. Why would people want to believe in lizard people to give them a a sense of control? Wouldn't you think that your reality was even more out of your control at this point? Wouldn't this like induce some sort of panic or anxiety? I would imagine. This article says that studies find the relationship between a certain type of open-mindedness and a tendency to believe in conspiracy theories, which I totally get this says that people who believe in these also believe in new age dogmas, urban legends, and all sorts of slightly unorthodox ideas. um, It says, unsurprisingly, a tendency to be suspicious and not to trust people or institutions is also positively correlated with how likely someone is to believe in a conspiracy theory. Now, he says that some of these conspiracy theories are absolutely appalling, and it's appealing for these theorists to insert their own villain of choice, which is kind of what we saw with the people that were appropriating They Live, that movie. Usinski, Joseph Usinski, he says, he says that it's hard to get more than 25% of the population to believe in one particular one, that there's a natural ceiling to the number of people who buy into any one conspiracy theory. He says that once people believe that these things exist, dissuading them is an uphill battle because it's not based on, the belief is not based on facts or logic. For example, pointing out the lack of evidence for a conspiracy theory would only reinforce the belief that the evidence for it was suppressed. Getting someone to let go of a favorite conspiracy theory is like convincing a Republican to become a Democrat and vice versa. He says we like to believe what we objectively scrutinize information and come to reasonable beliefs. And we have all kinds of biases built in our brain. That's very true. He says that if everyone was rational, the information would moderate their beliefs, and those who were sure of a conspiracy would start to doubt it, while those who were sure there was no conspiracy would also question their stance. The opposite happened. People picked and chose the information they wanted to believe, and everyone became more sure of their initial beliefs. Now, they have studied the social consequences to contemporary conspiracy theories and examined the impact of believing in government conspiracy theories and climate change conspiracy theories and anti-vaccine conspiracy theories. The findings were troublesome. They're troubling. Oh my goodness. So let's get into these 
let's get into these real quick. Now, I'm as I'm I'm as surprised as you are that I chose this article to include, but I wanted to make sure that we got a really great perspective from the side of people that think conspiracy theories are super problematic, that they think that they are dangerous. It's pretty interesting if, if you go in and you read it how it ties it into people that are concerned about vaccinating their children and the measles outbreak in 2014, people that are concerned about the the legitimacy of the election versus the people that just really want the president out of office. As you look through this and you see the bias and the unwillingness for them to consider these topics is just beyond me. It's, it's bizarre. So I will include that in the show notes so you can check that out. So this article is this is what we're going to close it up with. It's called How to Spot the Reptilians Running the U.S. Government. This is absolutely hilarious. And at least they're playing with the idea. Because even if it is a joke, the idea that it's possible that we cannot rule out the possibility of 12 million Americans, that's a lot of people to believe in that. And it really, I wish that they would do a study as to like which source and which situation pushed them into believing what they believe. Because my personal experience is that it's been talked about around me since I was a kid. And although I've never seen anything like that, and I'm not really even sure if I believe they exist, the concept that there might be billions of intelligent species in our galaxy that are far, far more advanced than we are. This article in The Atlantic talks about all these different sites that shows like people how to tell if you're under assault by reptilians. Protector of Mankind writes at alienufos.com that you can be a reptilian-human hybrid. So this is supposedly according to how David Icke, how it works. Thousands of years ago, the reptilian beings from the constellations Orion, Sirius, and Draco intervened on planet Earth and began interbreeding with humans, not physically, but rather through a manipulation of human coding or DNA. Ike states that there is no coincidence that humans have fundamental reptilian genes within their brain, which is very true because we did evolve, or so we think, right? So these are the common signs. This is according to one source. Predominance of green or hazel eyes that change color like a chameleon, but also blue eyes. (laughs) Piercing eyes. True red or reddish hair. Well, that's interesting. The the Paracas skulls, those so-called possible aliens had red hair. A sense of not belonging to the human race. Well, that is totally me. Low blood pressure. Geez, that's probably me too. A deep compassion for the fate of mankind. I think that's most of us. Keen sight or hearing. I'm pretty good too. I think I might be part reptilian. Psychic abilities. Unexplained scars on the body. ESP. UFO connections. Capability to disrupt electrical appliances. Alien contacts. The love of space and science. I think I have every single one of these, you guys. I don't know. So there's this like quiz that you can take and what it does and throughout the article, it goes through all these political officials, like it does Barack Obama and to see, you know, which of these like he has. And then it talks about, so they said that Barack Obama was a reptilian. Joe Biden, let's see what they say about him. The vice president is a reptilian. Mitt Romney, 
he's definitely a reptilian. And so it's really, really funny, actually, because those are pretty outlandish uh, situations. Like, those are the the checklist of whether or not you're a reptilian or not. Either way, we're not going to know. There's no way in hell we're going to find out unless it's like right in our faces and there's proof. There are a ton of YouTube videos out there of people that claim to have seen them, that claim to have worked with them, claim to have been channeled by them. There are people that have been claimed to be um, abducted. Thousands and thousands of people have claimed to be abducted. There's a lot of stories out there. And if you're interested in this reptilian phenomenon about as much as I am, I suggest you go check it out. There's um, videos of the Barack Obama's security detail guy with, you know, it's like his ear disappears and you don't see any of his facial features. It's really weird. But either way, like, how are we going to prove it? I mean, even now with the technology we have with the deep fakes and, you know, the digital technology we have, it's hard to tell what's real and what's not. So how are we ever going to be able to tell I want to know if any of you guys like ever heard about these things before, if you know anybody that has talked about them or, you know, like what you think, do you think it's absolutely outlandish and ridiculous? Do you think that they could exist? Do you think that there might be hybrids? Do you think that maybe in our DNA, there is an element of an ancient archon genetics? I don't know. All I know is it's a really big subject. There's a lot of people on both sides of the aisle. I would say that I'm more on the believer side than I would be on the non-believer side. But at the same time, like there's this this fine line to where you don't want to be crazy and you don't want to like induce your own thoughts into believing something that may not be real. We don't know. It's such a bizarre subject. So that's what we got for you this week. You send me some mail. Let me know what you think. I'm really curious as to what you think about this one because I was really all over the place on this topic. Plus, I was having mic issues. Plus, we got a generator running in the back. You could hear everybody on the highway. Ugh, what, what a weekly topic, man. Welcome to Inward Survival's School of Magic. This week, I have something a little special for you. Just real brief. Um, Because of these impending lockdowns, we were were nearing into our second round of lockdowns this year. Gyms are going to be closed. People are already depressed and stressed out. There is, you know, an increased risk of suicide. Holidays are already challenging for some people, and then you put this on top of it. But what can we do to improve things for ourselves? Well, we can go for a walk. There's outdoor fitness. There's um, indoor yoga, even though you're going to have to be by yourself. You, you could still practice indoors. Besides the physical well-being benefits, there's all kinds of psychological benefits. You have more energy. You have um, better quality of energy. You have improved memory. Your self-esteem increases. You have better sleep. And you have a higher resilience to the stressors in your life. It uh, Exercise creates a positive impact on depression and feelings of hopelessness, anxiety, pain management, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, 
stress, those feelings of being overwhelmed, and it releases endorphins that works as a natural medication. And what we do is we're going to, you know, like if you don't work out normally, that's cool. You start small, start with five to 10 minutes of like, if it's walking around your house, because it's pouring down rain outside, walk around your house, do a few laps, put some headphones in and walk around your house, dance around your house, whatever it is, start small. Do not like force yourself into doing this long, arduous workout because most likely you're not going to be able to keep up on it. But if you start doing something really, really itty bitty and you get your body used to that movement and functional movements. And my favorites are joint movements. So if you, you know, you start with your arms, you do your arm circles and then you, you swing your legs, you loosen up your hips, knee circles with your knee joints, you move them each um, uh, equal amount in each direction, get your joints like lubed up with that synovial fluid that will increase your circulation as well as like lubricate your joints. And so we we really need to do that, especially with the sedentary lifestyles that we all have, unless you're outside working or if, unless you're, you know, you're regularly doing fitness, most of us are lacking exercise in our lives. So like I said, start small, five, 10 minutes of walking a day, or even on just the weekends, they've, they've shown that um, just working out the two days during the weekend is just as good as working out three to five days a week. As long as you you schedule that time in and you make sure. Walking is some of the best exercise that you can get. So take your dogs out for a walk. Ask a friend to go walk with you. Just hit the streets on your in your neighborhood and just walk around the block a few times. Schedule it at a time of the day when you have the most energy. So like for me, it's usually the mornings. So I, you know, I try to get in half an hour to an hour. I don't always, but I usually feel like total crap if I don't. And if you can make it a social experience, it's much easier. I know some women that get up at like five o'clock in the morning and they meet up with other women for their running group or their boot camp and they get it out of the way before the world even wakes up. And that's the best way to do it. So if you can work out with people, try to do it. I was actually thinking of starting my own fitness group outdoor fitness group out here because I don't know anybody. I'm still new to this area, even though I've been here for two years. I feel like I'm locked away in my house and I feel like I need to be out in the community helping people and trying to influence people to do better for themselves while at the same time doing better for me. Because if I do not get that amount of exercise that I'm accustomed to, I, I get even more depressed. I, I get even more upset. So Inward Survival School of Magic for you wants you to move your body, whether it's doing neck circles, shoulder circles, elbow circles, knee circles, ankle circles, whatever it is, move your joints, do some stretching, put some music on and do some dancing, whatever it takes for you to get your blood flowing and your heart pumping and I promise you will not regret it. I know that this, this seems pretty lame for this week's School of Magic, but I'm not going to stress it enough. In fact, when I'm done recording this, I'm going to go move my body because literally I feel unwell if I don't. And it's really hard to see people that don't realize that this really is the key to their well-being, the key to a better outlook on life, the key to this crippling depression that a lot of us have. A lot of people have a crippling depression and if they're not talking about it and they just deal with it all on their own, 
then, you know, kudos to them, but it usually doesn't work. So get out there and move your body. Talk to somebody. Um, I was actually super interested in doing a effects of COVID support group in my area, and I did do it a little bit online. But then things got a little tough for me this fall, and so I, I, I pulled back on that quite a bit, and it has not helped me, and I know it's not helping anybody else for me not to suit up and show up. But sometimes it's really hard to go and put yourself out there when you're feeling your absolute worst. And maybe that's when we need to put ourselves out there is when we're feeling our absolute worst. So get out there, build your resilience, get some cellular respiration going in your body. When you're done listening to this, get out of your vehicle, go stand up, stretch, move your arms and legs around, and enjoy being alive. So now that I told you about the lizard people, and I told you that you need to get off your ass and get yourself some exercise, which, yes, I'm talking to you. So I'm glad that you came to join me so I could tell the interwebs that they need to get their shit together and start looking for lizard people. So that went well. This stoic thought I have for you is, I was looking at Wim Hof quotes, and Wim Hof is freaking phenomenal. And I do love everything that he says, especially in the ways that he says it. But I really wanted something... So we don't take life so seriously because in the end, I'm like, I don't know what your thoughts on the afterlife are, but um, do good works, try to be virtuous, try to be loving. And other than that, who gives a fuck? So Wim Hof says, okay, we're going to keep it light. So he says, your fitness is 100% mental. Your body won't go where your mind doesn't push it, end quote. So remember that. He also said, I'm not afraid of dying. I'm afraid to not have lived, end quote. Yeah, I, I feel pretty, pretty good and pretty accomplished after um, completing the Naked and Afraid Challenge and after getting my degree, even though I'm not using my degree, people. You know, here I am with my podcast locked up in my house because there's a pandemic awry. <laughs> and he also says, Wim Hof, Confidence comes when you have control with your own brain, end quote. Okay, I love that one. So now, like, let's lighten it up and look to the king of all the Stoics, George Carlin. And he says, quote, the planet is fine, the people are fucked, end quote. And then here's the last one. Remember this when you talk to yourself, George Carlin. The reason I talk to myself is because I'm the only one whose answers I accept, end quote. There's your stoic thought of the day, feeling a little sassy. Get out there and get them, guys. Sorry the episode's late, and sorry it's such a mess, but I don't care. Bye.